Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Kelsey Bowler. Today we are joined by special guest Sarah Perry, a senior legal fellow for the Edwin Meese Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I heard you can be a little problematic at times. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> yes. I think all who know me could attest to that fact. <laughs> well, speaking of problematic, there was some big news on Twitter this week with Elon Musk buying the company. What do you think, ladies? A big deal? Yeah, I'm going to tell you why it's a huge deal. First of all, because he uh, he has a real chutzpah to be able to say, <laughs> listen, I'm going to make you an offer, and it's going to be my best and final at $34 billion. Twitter turned it down. Then he was offered a seat on the board of directors. He turned it down, and then he came right back and said, guess what? I changed my mind. $44 billion it is. <laughs> and P.S., not only will I control Twitter, but I'm going to send the liberals into a frenzy and <laughs> pursue a First Amendment approach to non-censorship, <sighs> which I think is absolutely fantastic. Fantastic. I mean, his his public statement, his initial approach was free discussion is a foundational element of representative government. And that's exactly right. So, yes, Twitter is not subject to the First Amendment. But a lot of people say, listen, it's like the virtual public square. It makes it technically a public forum. So why Mm -hmm. can't we Mm -hmm. use public forum rules? Mm -hmm. I think it's great. I, for one, never knew that so many people had a deep-rooted fear of free speech. Yeah. This is kind of new to me. I mean, people are genuinely scared of Elon Musk running a platform that enables free speech. Well, the hysteria coming from CNN today was basically that he is going to alter the course of November's elections. Well, of course, I I have news for Elon Musk. I think the outcome of November's elections is fairly much a foregone conclusion. (laughs) Oh, that's great. (laughs) Well, big news, but we have a ton more to move on to. Kelsey, what do we have queued up today? Yeah, Sarah, we're pretty excited to have you on here today to help us make sense of not one, but three issues, all of which, uh, you know, require legal expertise above my level and stand to have a significant impact on all of our lives. The first is the Biden administration's planned changes to Title IX, which seeks to redefine sex to mean gender identity. The next involves the Supreme Court getting ready to weigh in on whether a public school employee is allowed to participate in silent prayer in view of students while on the clock. You heard that right. Very Mm. controversial, Mm. apparently. And finally, we'll have Sarah break down the state of play with the Biden administration's plan to appeal the transportation mask mandate, because who really wants to wear masks on planes and trains again? (laughs) Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just support strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. Your vocal support really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. The Biden administration is about to drop a new regulation that declares that Title IX is broken, and in order to fix it, they need to redefine sex to mean gender identity. This seemingly minor change in language will have major repercussions. For starters, I want to talk about what is Title IX. It's part of the Education Amendments of 1972 that prohibits sex discrimination in any federally funded program. Notably, almost all private colleges and universities must abide by it because they receive federal funding through federal financial aid programs used by their students. So this is far sweeping, and the measure itself has already resulted in a 1,000% increase in participation in women's sports. That's often where you hear Title IX referred to uh, when we're talking about women's sports. Um, It's had a pretty incredible impact there. Personally, I'm proud to have been a part of that statistic as a former Division I lacrosse player for some Mm -hmm. time. We'll maybe get 
to a little bit of that later. Uh, but before we dive into these cha- what these changes actually will mean, um, Sarah, I want to make sure our audience understands how Title IX works. Um, you know, sometimes I feel like <laughs> from the policy level, we throw on Title IX. Um, and I thought maybe we could use an example where we look at football is traditionally a men's sport, not many women playing. Uh, so in that case, like, is it okay for a school to fund a male football team if there's not a women's team? How does this break down? Well, there are certain criteria that the courts are required to look at when determining whether or not an educational offering is equal for both sexes. Mm-hmm. And one of the initial inquiries is whether or not there's sufficient interest. My guess is probably that at no college or university federally funded, is there an interest in mounting a women's football team? I haven't seen any press about any such interest, but that doesn't mean that similar expenditures could not be made on on other athletic offerings, say perhaps women's rhythmic gymnastics. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be an identical program. The goal of Title IX was to make them commensurate with one another and to provide for equality. And this was a result of two years of public debate. It was sort of a feminist hallmark at the time. It was advanced by Democrats. It was sponsored by Senator Birch Bay and George McGovern, two Democratic senators, both of whom took the perspective that Title VI only dealt with race and education. Title VII dealt with sex, but only in employment. And so a hole was left. We needed a bill, a law specifically related to education as concerns strictly sex discrimination. And this is why the Biden's attempt to fundamentally rewrite it is so problematic, because among other things, it is the only federal law specifically designed for parity between the sexes in an educational environment. So to get this, it's the Biden administration's cherry on the Sunday. They've already told all of the uh, executive agencies to review all of their non-discrimination provisions, make sure that sex means gender identity. Some of them have already taken that approach. Department of Justice was one of the first off the bat. The State Department was also first. But Title IX is sort of that last great get for them. And so this is a particular um, interesting topic because it was such a feminist triumph at the time. And they fought so hard to make sure that there was equality in education. And Kelsey, you mentioned the statistics, a thousand percent increase in the rate of athletic participation in the K through 12 and higher education standard. Ninety four percent of female executives played competitive sports at one point in their life. Those are significant impacts that this federal law has had, and they stand to all be essentially nullified by this ham-handed attempt to shoehorn the transgender agenda into education. So what is the process and how does the Biden administration plan to do this? Because the House and the Senate, they're, the Senate's 50-50, the, the House wouldn't. Is this just an executive action? And so they don't even need Congress at all? So they don't. It's an executive action, yes, through the executive agencies Mm -hmm. and something called the Administrative Procedure Act, Mm -hmm. which is a law that allows federal agencies to make interpretations, rules based on the laws they already enforce. So Mm -hmm. in other words, Supreme Court has said, we defer to you all Mm -hmm. on what the laws are that your agency is tasked with enforcing because ostensibly you're in the best position Mm -hmm. to understand those laws. And so the Biden administration has started the clock on this Administrative Procedure Act rulemaking. The stage here is that it's currently with the Office for Management and Budget, and they are holding meetings with stakeholders who are voicing concerns or support one way or the other on this rule that the Department of Ed has already written but has not yet been approved by OMB. If and when it is, it will get kicked back to Department of Education and they will open up a public comment portal during a period called notice and comment. And then the American people get 30 days to have their voices be heard before the rule takes effect. So there's a lot on the line, but we are in step two of a three-step process. This seems like a huge change for an executive action. How common is this? In the federal government. 
Well, when I was senior counsel at Department of Education, we issued a new rule on Title IX that Mm -hmm. offered protections, due process protections for both the accused and the accuser in Mm -hmm. sexual assault and sexual violence Mm -hmm. cases on campus. We did that. After a year and a half of review, Mm -hmm. a year and a half of meetings with stakeholders, and 124,000 public comments, each one painstakingly reviewed so that we took into account everything that transpires during these Title IX grievance procedures, we wanted to make sure that we were offering the best protections for everyone involved Mm -hmm. in these processes. So it's not as common as one would think. Mm -hmm. Generally, these kind of rulemaking actions tend to elicit a lot of attention Mm -hmm. because it is an executive agency, a federal agency's way of saying we're saying something new on a longstanding rule. So this one in particular is getting a lot of attention. Mm. Well, first off, Sarah, I have to address the fact that Lauren completely glazed over the fact uh, that you said 94% of female executives played a college sport. Wow. So I think that suggests that I have a very bright future ahead of me. (laughs) (laughs) Keep looking up, Kelsey. (laughs) Now, I I do have to admit, I quit after just under uh, two years of playing lacrosse because I went to a Division I school that's one of the smallest Division I schools in the country. And it's really interesting because our football program would get so much funding, um, But, uh, you know, it's obviously harder to recruit and compete with some of these massive schools. We were in the Patriot League um, when other sports um, were getting a lot of funding. So I'm actually like interested to like take an example and see how the funding and and, and this issue breaks down because I I have a funny story I can share with you guys. (laughs) So my school, Lafayette College, had a men's golf team and... Uh, my friends and I were friends with some of the guys on the men's golf team. And all of a sudden, the golf team was at risk of getting cut uh, because of Title IX. And the way to stop the men's golf team from getting cut was to form a women's golf team. And we felt really bad that their golf team was going to get cut because it's something they really cared about. And we knew, you know, they had a lot of fun with. And so a few of us signed up to be on the women's golf team. And I can tell you, um, we hardly knew how to hit a golf ball, but we were still part of a Division One golf team. So I don't know what exactly goes on behind the scenes to comply with Title IX, uh, but I, you know, I do know as a former D1 athlete, it is very important, and I'm sure my life was um, shaped because of it. I mean, who knows if that opportunity would have been ever been available to me uh, had this existed in its current form, not in the form the Biden administration is trying to change it to. And on that front, Sarah, I want to ask, are these are these changes inevitable or are there any way to stop them? Well, we know that the department, the Office for Management and Budget is scheduling meetings with stakeholders through the middle of May. So for about another three weeks. Now, remember, the Department of Education, Catherine Lehman's Office for Civil Rights, had said, we're going to drop this new rule in April, which was a month earlier than they had originally told us in May. I think they're going to have to walk that back. I think Mm -hmm. the earliest we're going to see a rule drop could be May. Is it inevitable? Well, we hope not. And in fact, that is why Heritage, among other stakeholders, have been holding meetings Mm -hmm. with OMB, forcing their feet to the fire so that they listen to the fact that it is not only not supported by the law that's been represented by the Biden administration, but also because the costs have not been studied. And there will be impacts that OMB is absolutely required to take into account when approving or disapproving of a federal rule. The Biden administration has not told us why Title IX is broken. We've heard a lot of sort of, you know, fancy, comfortable, socially justice-oriented rhetoric about it's about equality and we don't want trans discrimination. There's nothing preventing transgender Americans from competing in scholastic sports. We are asking to maintain sex segregated Mm -hmm. spaces on the basis of immutable, unchanging biology because it is patently unfair to take Title IX's purpose to protect women, to give them equality, safety, and privacy, and to eliminate it in the name of some progressive agenda. That, we believe, won't stand. So we're hoping it's not a 
foregone conclusion. If the rule drops, my very strong suspicion is that we will see a number of federal lawsuits immediately seeing permanent injunctive relief. And we might get it. There are a number of federal circuits that are keen to textually interpret the law by the way it's written and not read anything extra into Mm it. Uh, The Fifth and Sixth Circuit in particular. So – We'll see what happens. Um, I'm I'm hopeful that we can stop the train. And if the train leaves the station, that our friends who run public interest law firms will know exactly what to do to slow it down. And could that potentially go all the way up to the Supreme Court? Absolutely. And they've had an opportunity to uh, review Title IX's application in previous cases. Um, Gavin Grimm versus Clouster School Board was one of those cases that was a transgender male who was denied access to the men's bathroom, but they just denied cert. They didn't Mm -hmm. think that that was ripe for consideration at the time. I think because Justice Gorsuch, who wrote the Bostock opinion, remember, Mm -hmm. sex is also gender identity for federal employment Mm -hmm. law. I think he realized that he created um, a bit of a tangle, and mm-hmm. they tried to limit the decision only to Title VII, but it invariably has had Title IX effects, and that's where we are right now. That's so interesting. Um, but Sarah, you're not just a legal scholar. You're also a mom. So yes. how does this make you feel about your teenage daughter? Well, uh, you know, I have a teenage daughter and two teenage boys, and there are both aspects of the current rule when, if changed, will detrimentally affect both of them. Title IX is really a rule for all boys and all girls in athletic, in athletics and in every other educational opportunity federally funded. I think about my boys. God forbid they're accused of something uh, on a college campus. I want them to have due process protections, the right to be represented by counsel, to cross-examine witnesses, to introduce evidence. The Biden administration doesn't want that. They want a guilty until proven innocent standard. And then for my teenage daughter who plays on a uh, traveling volleyball team right now and who played JV volleyball during the school year, the possibility exists that as soon as November, we might see her volleyball team opened up to biological boys, which, again, is untenable. But more so, it's not just sports. It's any sex uh, equality-driven space from single-sex admissions to bathrooms, locker rooms, overnight housing accommodations, scholarships, admissions, you name it. Anything touched in education that deals with sex equality is going to be affected by this new rule. So my my hair on the back of my neck is standing up. I will mm-hmm. say that. I have great concerns about passage of this regulation. And I think that's why all of these transgender stories are important to talk about. Sometimes yeah. it just seems like, oh, it's just a swimmer. But no, it's not. It, this is They're trying to redefine women on a national sense. And once we lose this fight, I mean, wh- where do we even go from there? That's exactly it. I think if you eliminate what was really a penultimate um, civil rights achievement for women. Mm -hmm. They didn't get the Equal Rights Amendment, but Mm -hmm. they did get Title VII and they got Title Mm IX. And they also got the Equal Pay Act, which is amended by Title IX. This was sort of their their, we've made it declaration. Um, So for them now to be disappearing in large part into the woodwork, I think is, is untenable. It defeats the very purpose, mission, and history of one of, in my estimation, the most important civil rights laws of recent memory. So how as conservatives should we deal with this? Because I think in theory, we, we don't necessarily see the need for sex protection laws. But now that they're in place, they're doing important things for women. So how do we balance protecting women, protecting women's sports without kind of letting the left pass a law and then later try to move it for something that it's not meant to be? Well, that's why I wish we had heard more from our friends on the left about why Title IX needs to be protected. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, everyone seems to be jumping on the transgender agenda train, which is really unfortunate. What we see is the subsequent elimination of legal womanhood. Mm -hmm. The definition of what a woman is, Mm -hmm. the reality of how a woman is born. And the Supreme Court has recognized certain characteristics are immutable. Mm -hmm. They are, as the justices have written, an accident of birth, Mm -hmm. Um, national origin, ethnicity, um, whether or not you're a man or a woman, what your race is. And yet 
this administration seems to forget that we have 60 years of jurisprudence relying on immutability as the core of civil rights law. So I think people need to understand it's not just athletics. It is every educational program designed to provide equal services, opportunities, benefits, privileges for men and women. So there is very there's going to be such a significant impact from this rule remake that it will be fundamentally altering the state of American education. Sarah, I couldn't agree more. And I just have to say, I'm really tired of the response from uh, critics who call me prude or naive um, or fear monger when I say women's spaces need to be protected, specifically locker rooms in um, female spaces in schools and education settings. Uh, because I have to be honest, like I... I, I don't want the first time my daughter confronts a male-bodied individual to be in a locker room. I find that extremely inappropriate and a gross invasion of our privacy. And I'm so tired of women being told, you have to stand down and shut up and put up with things like that. Because these are women's spaces and only f- female-bodied individuals should be in these spaces. And um, on that front, I have to give a shout out to Independent Women's Forum, where uh, most of our listeners know I'm a senior policy analyst there uh, for uh, advocating for what uh, we are calling the Women's Bill of Rights, which would codify into law what a woman is and what a man is in other basic terms. I, I think this is unfortunately necessary considering the state of play on these issues. Um, and, and we do have to work very hard to ensure um, these basic rights are protected. So, Sarah, thank you for all your work on this. Um, and on that front, we're going to take a short break and be back with more. It's easy to get overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle. So if you're looking for a way to keep up with the news that matters, the Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day. Hosts Doug Blair, Rob Bluey, and me, Virginia Allen, bring you headlines and interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. If you're a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out the Daily Signal podcast available every weekday morning. The Biden administration just can't quit the transportation mass mandate. On April 18th, U.S. District Judge Catherine Kimball Mizell ruled that the 14-month-old directive was unlawful, officially ending the Biden administration's transportation mass mandate. For now, the Department of Justice announced shortly after that they would appeal the judge's decision after the CDC said it was, quote-unquote, necessary. Quote, the CDC continues to recommend that people wear masks in all indoor public transportation settings. The CDC's number one priority is protecting the public health of our nation. As we've said before, wearing masks is most beneficial in crowded or poorly ventilated locations, such as the transportation corridor. So, Sarah, I want to get both your personal thoughts and then your (laughs) legal thoughts on this. Where is the science that we've been told all along to believe in? Well, um, I will say, and I think about education first, based on the fact that I do have three kids who are school age, we recognized uh, only after a significant amount of digging that's now become more public on the CDC's website that the masking studies that were being utilized to require school age students to wear masks were not having a statistically significant effect on the transmission of COVID-19. So I find it very interesting that in the same format in terms of areas of high population um, or high density, that there is an attempt to continue to foist the mask mandate on individuals. And let me say something about what's happening with the travel mandate. Um, Judge Mazel did strike it down. It expires of its own terms on May 3rd. So the Biden administration has indicated that they're going to appeal to the 11th Circuit. The majority of those judges in the 11th Circuit are Trump appointees. They are Republican-appointed judges. They are very likely to affirm her decision. And I think I am hopeful, at the very least, that it will finally put a stake in the heart of these mandates, the Mm -hmm. mask mandates that refuse to die. We will continue to hear 
potential excuses from this administration on what justifies the use of their of their regulatory authority. The CDC eviction moratorium failed. They used the CDC as an attempt to prevent collection of back rent based on the COVID pandemic. The Supreme Court said no thank you and struck it down. They used the OSHA Act through OSHA to basically say all federal employees need a vaccination. The Supreme Court said, no, thank you. We're going to knock that down. The one that they did uphold was the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare mask mandate because they said those facilities are medical facilities. They have a medical component to them that's within the CDC's authority. But this opinion relied specifically on the fact, the Public Health Act of 1944. And Judge Mazzell said, listen, never in a million years did Congress intend for transportation to be regulated through the Public Health Service Act. So once again, we're seeing this administration reach beyond its regulatory authority and use essentially big government to shoehorn another mask mandate onto the people. I'm thrilled that Judge Mazzell took an active stance. She, she had a very well-reasoned opinion. Um, she is young. You know, she's taken a lot of <laughs> liberal criticism for being not qualified, according to the ABA, not that I would give you two cents for what the ABA has to say (laughs) about qualifications based on some of their recent activity. But she wrote a tremendous opinion. My guess is it's going to be upheld by the 11th Circuit. And if and when it ever gets to the Supreme Court, the mask mandate will have been exhausted of its own terms. So we're not likely to see any practical effect, regardless of the fact that the Biden administration is appealing the decision. Well, I think it's what's interesting about this is the Biden administration wants it both ways, right? They know the mass, right. mass mandate is wildly unpopular, but you saw the videos of the people on the planes taking off their masks, <laughs> yes. and they're cheering, but they don't want to give up this, the power that the CDC has really grown over the pandemic. Right. I mean, this was, this was passed not under Trump when the pandemic was at its worst, so under Biden. Is there any other precedent of government agencies taking control like this, or is this a new phenomenon under the Biden administration? I I would say it's new-ish under the Mm. Biden administration. I would say that um, not since the New Deal have we Mm. seen this kind of a land grab for Mm. federal agency authority. And you can see it set up Mm. really sort of this battle royale between the feds and the state. And we've seen some of the best developments, particularly from the public health standpoint, come out of the states Mm -hmm. under the 10th Amendment. The Constitution makes very clear that nothing, anything that's not specifically enumerated in the Constitution Mm -hmm. should automatically go to the states. We have decades, centuries even, of case law that indicates that states are to have the plenary police authority to regulate on health, safety, and welfare. That includes medicine. So every time I see the federal government try to get involved yet again on regulating on COVID, I really have to laugh because two out of three losses have not been sufficient to slow down this train. So I think what we're going to see ultimately is a continuing series of legal challenges as long as this administration uses its federal executive power to try to make law without going through Congress. So President Biden clearly has no idea how to handle this situation on a trip to New Hampshire. <laughs> Understatement of the year. <laughs> okay, you have to listen to what happened, though. On a trip to New Hampshire, he answered a question about whether people should continue to wear masks on planes by saying, quote, it's up to them. But shortly after, when it became clear that his own administration was actually going to appeal this mask mandate ruling, Biden, when talking about it again, started rambling and said, quote, what I'm considering is continue to hear from my my. First of all, there's going to be an appeal by the Justice Department, because as a matter of principle, we want to be able to be in a position where if, in fact, it is strongly concluded by the scientists that we need Title 42, that we'd be able to do that. But there has been no decision on extending Title 42. Wow. So that was whiplash. We, we went from mask mandates suddenly to immigration in the span of about 1,200 words. Right. He was asked a question about the mask mandates and responded about Title 42. So his team obviously had to issue a correction about that. 
um, Title 42. You you both clearly know since you started laughing when hearing that. But just in case any listeners don't know, Title 42 is a Trump-era COVID policy that limits immigration at the border due to COVID, which the Biden administration re- recently announced it was ending because apparently as it applies to our immigration policies, COVID is over. But then when it comes to mass mandates on airplanes and trains and other forms of transportation, COVID very much is still a thing. It's still a thing for students, uh, and they don't have to repay uh, their student loans. Um, But you know, with Title 42 immigration, COVID's not really a thing anymore. So Sarah, would would a court consider these inconsistencies from the administration to say COVID is not an issue over at the border, but, you know, it's still such an issue that it's we're going to mandate it, mandate mass on planes. Well, in the in the OSHA case uh, on the federal employment uh, vaccination requirement, one of the things that was mentioned was the fact that Congress has had a multitude of opportunities during the pandemic, now into its third year, I suppose, to legislate on the precise issue of, for example, masks or vaccinations. It has decidedly refused to do so. So it might be pursuant to an ancillary discussion about how much authority the president has and how much he is seeking to garner for himself by using a pretextual basis. No one can argue with a straight face that COVID is now the threat that it was three years ago. So I think Judge Mazel's opinion sums it up perfectly. The use of the law in the CDC case with the travel mask mandate is unsupported by the language of the statute the administration is applying. They will take, this administration will take anything on which they could conceivably make regulatory announcements, and they will stretch it as far as they can. The language in the Public Health Service Act of 1944, which is at issue in this travel mask mandate case, talks about sanitizing. Well, that has nothing to do with masks. It doesn't disinfect. It doesn't prevent transmission of disease. So she used the language itself to say, under no plain reading, can we ultimately agree that this has to do with sanitizing or transportation? It's such a joke. And <laughs> it, the thing about the Biden administration is just when you don't think it get worse, it somehow does. And you think back two years ago when Trump was president, it would be like record economy, you know, record job numbers. But he has the worst disapproval rating ever right like and that was the headline and now biden has like a 29 percent approval rating and an easter bunny leading <laughs> yeah. him around yeah. they don't even talk about it well and so i traveled this week and i went to florida for a work conference and stayed to hang out with some friends and everybody else had pictures of them like throwing the mask in the air smiling like so happy like no i was still mad and upset that i had to be in an airport and but it was just like one less thing that I didn't have to have this mask on my right, face. Right. Um, and I, there is something symbolic about not having the government literally have a piece of cloth over your face. Yes. So. It or is, over it is your tr- two-year-old's face, I have to say, as a mom of a two-year-old. <laughs> I was going to say, Kelsey, you get it more than anybody. I mean, we've all seen the horrendous footage on airplanes where the flight attendants are telling parents with squalling toddlers to mask their children's faces as though that will have any practical effect on transmission of the disease. It's really ridiculous. Right. Well, lots more we could say on that. But I also want to get to our next topic, and that is Coach Joe Kennedy, a man I hold near and dear to my heart. So after a seven-year battle, Coach Joe Kennedy's case was heard before the United States Supreme Court. The situation is pretty crazy. He's a high school football coach who took a knee to pray at the 50-yard line ended up at the Supreme Court where the justices will now decide whether a public school employee is allowed to participate in silent prayer in view of students while on the job. From the time he began coaching in 2008 at Bremington High School, about 30 miles west of Seattle, Coach Kennedy made it his practice to thank God after every game. As the Daily Signal reported, he does not even remember the first time he prayed on the 50-yard line because he said it was not a big deal. It was just me going out there, taking a knee by myself, and giving thanks for what the players just did. 
Eventually, players became curious about what Kennedy was doing at the end of every game, and some asked if they could join. He said, this is a free country. It's America. You can do whatever you want. And he continued to pray on the field until 2015 uh, when he recalled that the school lawyers got involved. They kept moving the goalposts, told him he could no longer pray even by himself if people could see him. And eventually the district put him on administrative leave when he refused to stop praying on the 50-yard line. And at the end of the season, his personal evaluation read, in great, big, bold letters, do not rehire. So when hearing about this case, you have to kind of think, like, there has to be more, right? Like, he he did something more offensive than kneeling at the 50-yard line and saying a prayer after coaching a football game. But really, Sarah, there's not. And he finally got his day in court this week. How did the hearing go? In the Supreme Court. (laughs) Yes. In the Supreme Court. He has had many days in court. (laughs) Right, Lauren? (laughs) I will say this. First of all, it's not his it wasn't his first time at the Supreme Court. Remember, in 2019, he went up on a petition for uh, interlocutory review. He was trying to maintain his coaching position while the litigation was going Mm. on. So they denied the petition for review at the time. But four of the justices, Alito, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch and Thomas, all signed on to a separate opinion in which they said the Ninth Circuit's understanding of the free speech rights of public school teachers is very troubling and might justify future review. Well, that, of course, for the good attorneys at First Liberty Institute was a signal that, you know what, by the time this is all said and done, we might get a second kick at the can. Well, that the oral arguments came yesterday. Paul Clement, former U.S. Solicitor General, was arguing as counsel for First Liberty Institute for Joe Kennedy. And Brian Katsky of the Americans United for Separation of Church and State, one of my my least favorite organizations, (laughs) um, was arguing for Bremerton School District. And basically, the First Amendment is the only law at issue here. But the First Amendment has so many moving pieces Mm -hmm. because this isn't just a free speech case and it's not just a religious liberty case. It is, as Paul Clement said, a bit of a hybrid. In other words, it is free speech, but it is religious speech. And because it's religious speech, it has extra protection, double protection, if you will, because the Supreme Court has recognized that religion is different. Mm-hmm. As the first of our enumerated rights in the in the Bill of Rights, the founders took special interest in making sure that our nation's founding, that which was based on religious freedom, was concretized in our founding documents and was the first to be memorialized in the Bill of Rights. So the justices recognized, listen, it's, it's entirely not too much to ask to say that an individual making a private expression of his personal religious devotion is going beyond the lines of what's proper for a public school, a government employee. Now, the liberal justices wanted to establish this as a violation of the Establishment Clause. In other words, we know that the First Amendment talks about the rights that are guaranteed, freedom of the press, right to assembly, right to petition, right to free speech. But it also says government shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. In other words, the government has to stay out. There is no wall of separation between church and state. That's a wide misnomer. But the liberal justices were concerned that his expression, visible to other people, was a violation of the Establishment Clause because, after all, wasn't he still on the clock? Wasn't he still a government employee? Doesn't that establish some kind of religious intent by the government? And the Conservative justices seemed wholly unimpressed with that. Um, Justice Barrett, who I just love, who has seven children, (laughs) among them teenagers, piped up and said, isn't this just a straight up free exercise clause? Uh, She used straight up twice, by the way, some (laughs) fun Supreme Court (laughs) trivia. Um, And Justice Kavanaugh made a particular note of what Counsel for Americans United had said. He said, ultimately, that it would be okay if, for example, a coach crosses himself on the sideline before a game, as long as he, quote, 
doesn't make himself the center of attention, prompting a very irritated Justice Kavanaugh to say, how are we supposed to write an opinion based on making yourself the center of (laughs) of attention? So I think it was very clear that the justices, the four original conservative justices who said the Ninth Circuit really messed this one up, are certainly on board to uphold uh, Joe Kennedy's right to kneel and to pray. Um, there are some swing votes. I don't particularly know how Roberts is going to rule. But at bottom, religion trumps everything else. Mm. Freedom of religion. You could even cut out the free speech, government speech aspect of this. All the school board cases, all of the government speech, even though the Supreme Court has said teachers and students do not surrender their First Amendment rights at the schoolhouse doors. And they referenced that again in yesterday's oral arguments. But we don't even have to make it that complicated, Kavanaugh said. We can just go to free exercise because religion is different. So I'm hopeful that this case will come out the right way. Well, and I have to brag a little bit on Kelsey and the Daily Signal because— And Virginia. Well, and Virginia. But Kelsey, when I met her, she was like, oh, this is the girl who did the Coach Kennedy documentary. Kelsey has been (laughs) following this story since 2015. So I want to ask you, Kelsey, what has it been like— for you, you got to go down there and meet Coach Kennedy and meet his students and see him on this fight for seven years. How personally has that affected you? Oh, my gosh. Coach Kennedy is exactly the guy you would want to be coaching your son's football team. He is everything you want in a coach. He's compassionate. He would, um, for some of the kids who maybe had an absent father, he wasn't just a coach. Like he would invite those kids over for Thanksgiving. He would go out of his way to make them feel, um, cared for. And, um, I mean, he was just, he's really an, an inspirational figure. Um, and, but at the same time, he's just an every everyday guy. He, I think, he called himself to me. I'm, I'm an average Joe, which is especially funny <laughs> since his name is Joe Kennedy. Um, and and so for this average Joe to wind up at the Supreme Court, as we said, not once but twice, is is just it, it, it's hard it's hard to believe the weight of it after meeting him because he is just like a nice normal good-hearted guy and it, you find it hard to believe that anybody would want to put him through this and um kind of like put a put a stain on all the ways he's helped children and and I'm like how does somebody not look at everything he's doing for these kids many of whom um, you know, he is setting such a important personal example for um, in, in, in his faith as well. Um, it, it's just hard to believe that he's going through this and the strength and endurance it has required for him to stay in this fight for seven years now. Um, he deserves so much credit because he, he knows this is bigger than himself, which is why he's doing this. Um, but at the end of the day, he did lose his job, we have mm. to remember. Um, so, you know, I, I do hope that justice prevails. And, um, you know, I, I pray he, he knows how much um, support he has out there. Um, because, you know, he, he's everything you would want in a football coach and more. And it makes me think like we always get to on the show, elections have consequences, right? If Donald Trump hadn't won, we wouldn't have had the Supreme Court justices that we can hopefully rely on to rule the right way. These local school district bureaucrats who put Coach Kennedy through this, they were elected by the public. And it's really important, I mean, all the way down from sharing this podcast with your friends so they understand the problem to speaking out, speaking at school board meetings, making sure that other people know the issues and and they're not just going to vanity vote on, you know, oh, I like the women in the pink hats because all of these issues, like had one thing had gone wrong, Coach Kennedy could lose his job and this could be precedent forever that a coach couldn't pray. And it's not, I don't want to stress out our listeners because you have to have peace that everything's going to be okay. But at the same time, understand we're in a part of American history where it's really scary, kind of the tipping point where things could go. That's part of the reason I'm so passionate about the accurate interpretation of the law, because Mm. 
in the end, everybody's rhetoric will ultimately fail. Mm. There will always be someone who is better funded, who is louder, who is more perceived to be disadvantaged. Mm. Again, I give you the the transgender agenda and taking 0.6% of the population and elevating it above the 52% of the population that is biologically (laughs) female. But I digress. I do think in the end, if we don't have the accurate interpretation and application of the law, whether it's constitutional law or statutory law, then the entire house of cards on which the nation was founded begins to fall apart. Part of the wisdom of the founders, not that they were ever infallible, but I think they had divine knowledge at the time Mm -hmm. to be able to build a structure that's worked for 250 years, is making sure that, for example, those who are sitting in the seat of judicial authority and power understand the principles that they were trying to enact. So yesterday's oral arguments were an encouragement to me because I heard the justices speaking from an appreciation of constitutional rights. The Bill of Rights and the First Amendment was not enacted to allow the government more power, but to give the individual more power. So that wall of separation between church and state that we so often and mistakenly rely on was never in place in the first place. So particularly as concerns government employees, if you are relegated only to the practice of your faith behind closed doors in a private area, then really what good is the constitutional First Amendment right Mm. in the first place? Mm. Absolutely. I want to follow up on that with one last question. But I do want to give a shout out to Virginia Allen, who uh, actually did a follow up with Coach Kennedy, which is published on the Daily Signal. It's a it's a great video and, and written story. Um, if any of our listeners want to check that out, but during that interview, Coach Kennedy said the only thing I'm asking the Supreme Court is that I get to be a coach and I get to thank God afterwards. So simple, right? And mm-hmm. this case is so important, and it, it quite frankly makes it makes me sad that it even has to be heard that this is even a question that he would be able to do this who wants to live in a country where people can't express their religious beliefs i'm curious if yesterday um sarah if you know if anybody raised the question of wearing a hijab while on the clock at school because wouldn't that be an expression of religious belief as well well, I'll, I'll give you an example of the double standard. We're going to we're going to like circle all this up. You guys are going to be amazed. <laughs> so we started this show with Twitter and I talked about Twitter as being sort of a virtual public forum. Mm-hmm. Public forum is an open space, sort of a quasi governmental open space. I give you a case called Shirtlift v. Boston, which is another public forum case in which 284 flags were flown in front of City Hall in Boston. The one flag that was turned down had a cross on it for Camp Constitution and so So they denied the application because in a public forum, they said it would be a violation of the Establishment Clause. Well, here again, we have Coach Joe Kennedy, a violation of the Establishment Clause. In the Shirtliff v. Boston case, they flew a uh, cross that had a Muslim symbol on it. They also fly the Boston flag that has in Latin, God be with us, as he was with our (laughs) forefathers. And yet, for some reason, the expression of a traditional Judeo-Christian ethic seems to be particularly distasteful for individuals these days. So we go back to the public forum, the importance of the First Amendment, free speech, violation of the Establishment Clause, Liberals are relying way too much on making sure that they don't endorse religion. How about letting religion just be? Mm. Amen. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you don't you don't leave the problematic woman speechless much, but <laughs> All right. Well, when we come back, we are going to announce our problematic woman of the week. Are you looking for quick conservative policy solutions to current issues? Sign up for Heritage's weekly newsletter, The Agenda. In The Agenda, you will learn what issues Heritage scholars on Capitol Hill are working on, what position conservatives are taking, and links to our in-depth research. The Agenda also provides information on important events happening here at Heritage that you can watch online, as well as media interviews from our experts. Sign up for The Agenda on Heritage.org today. Welcome back. It is now that time, once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. 
And the crown goes to U.S. District Judge Catherine Kimball Mazel. We talked about this earlier on the show, how she got attacked by critics for her ruling. Um, and I think it's safe to say she's been pretty problematic over the course of the past week or so. Do you all agree? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> she has taken, she took a ton of heat during confirmation because she is young. Uh, the time of her confirmation, I want to say she was around 30, but she did clerk for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. And uh, he actually swore her in to the federal oh, bench. That's awesome. So she took heat at the time because, again, the ABA said not qualified. Then she issued an opinion that the liberals were screaming over the Biden administration was promising to appeal. I think this is someone who sticks to her guns, who knows what the law says, what the law doesn't say, and is absolutely certain that the regents of, you know, sort of the administrative states, the ones who were up in the ether telling us what we can do with our bodies based on a waning um, pandemic, I think she kind of recognizes now that the gig is up. So I give her incredible props. Well, and you know that she's doing the right thing when they you haven't heard one critique on her actual ruling. It's all right. absolutely. <laughs> oh, she was Trump appointed. She she doesn't she's have only thirty five, yeah. right. which is so funny. You'd never hear if it were, you know, a liberal leaning it, it activist would be awesome. judge. No. It would be no. like slay queen. She's right. <laughs> which can I say, slay queen? Yeah. She's well, I mean, if Barrett's going to say straight up, then yeah. you can definitely <laughs> say slay queen. Did she say that during an she, argument? Twice during oral arguments for Kennedy. Oh, so just, just cementing just her place her in my heart. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that is what you get for having a mom of seven on the Supreme Court. I she does it. not have time to mince words. <laughs> well, Sarah, it has been so fun to have you on the show. We hope you come on very soon. You just invite me on. I'll come on whenever <laughs> you want. Yes, please come back. And on that note, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, CastBox, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.